Hello, I'm James Fitzsimons, and welcome to The Career Scoop, a podcast all about career progression, advice, and experiences aimed at assisting those who are in career transition. Today, my guest is Kingsley Aitkins. Kingsley is currently CEO of the Networking Institute and was formerly President and CEO of the Worldwide Ireland Funds. I'm delighted to welcome you to the show. Thanks, James. Great to be with you. Super. Well, to kick off, you might just give us a quick overview of your career to date. Maybe share some of the highs and lows. What are you most proud of? Oh, wow. Um, gee, how long have you got, James? Because, <laughs> uh, um, you know, I wasn't born today or yesterday. This goes back quite a long way. But uh, I'm from Dublin, born educated, uh, school college here. Um, went off to France to play rugby, would you believe? I know you're a rugby guy, so you'd, you'd appreciate that. Um, played for a season over there, got mashed up, of course, and uh, actually never really played again after that. Um, and then uh, I went to London for a while. Then I joined, um, I don't know if you remember, Chorus Hall. was the name of the organization. It's now called Enterprise Ireland. CTT. CTT in the old days. And I actually put my, I couldn't, I wanted to get transferred overseas. So I put my name down for a posting. And the way it worked in those days is you can't decide where you go. In fact, you know, if you spoke Arabic, you'd probably get sent to Finland. You know the way these things always seem to happen. Anyway, I put my name down and I said, um, I'm really keen to go. And there was five cities up for grabs. And I'll always remember because one of them was Moscow, one was Sydney, one was Lagos in Nigeria. Another one was um, Glasgow and then the Glamour posting. Uh, Limerick, right? So you, you put your name in the hat and you, you can't choose and you got to go wherever you're sent or else it's not good for your career. And actually my name came up opposite Sydney, Australia. And so I headed out there uh, literally with a toothbrush and um, didn't know a sinner when I got there. Met a few sinners since then and um, and just got going. And, and an interesting thing happened actually when I arrived. I, I had one name of somebody to call. My mother had a neighbor whose son was there and I called this guy and I said, I don't know anybody, but could you introduce me to the local Irish business network in Sydney? And he said, there isn't one. And I said, well, why, why don't we set one up? And so we, we, he rang a few people and we got 13 people together. We had a dinner one night and because we both used to play rugby, we called ourselves the Lansdowne Road Club. And then the thing grew and in the spirit of sort of sporting ecumenism, we dropped the word road and it just became the Lansdowne Club. So um, two years ago, they invited me back for the 30th anniversary of that 13-person event. And there was 2,000 people at it. And it's become the biggest Irish business network that I think exists anywhere. And it was a really interesting example of, um, you know, this notion nobody started a large organization. I love that concept. I mean, when you think about it, 21-year-old Steve Jobs and 27-year-old Steve Wozniak put a few bits and pieces of a computer together in a garage in Cupertino and sold the first Apple computer. Now, Apple today is, as you know, a $2 trillion company. I mean, three years ago, it was a $1 trillion company. And if you look at some of the great stories um, of, of companies like Disney, companies like Hewlett and Packard started in a shed, or even Facebook started in a dorm, or here in Ireland, you have you know, Ryanair started in 1985, when uh, a plane took off from Waterford with 18 passengers and uh, got across to London, the first plane. To, to Luton, if I reckon. Well, Luton, was it? Wow. Well, something's never changed. And, uh, you know, so I, I do love that notion of nobody, nobody ever started a large organisation. And, and when I went on then with, to, to work with the Ireland Funds, 
I mean, it was a wonderful example of that because the first dinner of the Ireland Funds was held in New York in the Waldorf Astoria. And the dinner was so unsuccessful. The only reason they had a second dinner a year later was to pay for the first dinner they had. And you know, that's one of those apocryphal stories that's gone into kind of the folklore of the organization. And why was it unsuccessful? I'm curious. You know, who knows? Who knows, James? In the long lost in the mists of time. It's a story that's kind of loosely based on fiction. I mean, nobody quite knows the facts around this one, except that it was it was an unsuccessful event. In fact, there was another funny thing happened because the, the two write a very um, interesting people behind the Ireland Funds. One was a guy called Tony O'Reilly, who was, again, a great sportsman, but a great businessman and headed up the H.J. Hines Food Company in the U.S. And the other was a guy called Dan Rooney, and he owned the Pittsburgh Steelers football team uh, in the U.S. His father bought the Steelers for a couple of thousand bucks. It's now, you know, one of the most su- successful franchises in the world. So, so they had this event on that night and um, Tony said, we're modeled on the UJA, the United Jewish Appeal, who had raised so much money among the Jewish diaspora for Israel. Could, the, could we do something similar amongst the Irish diaspora for, to support projects in Ireland? Um, we didn't know, um, but we gave, it a, we gave it a try. And Tony, as you probably know, is a funny speaker. And we had a slogan in those days, which was peace, culture, charity. And he said, we're going to change it to look Irish, dress British, think Yiddish. And if we could get those three things in alignment, we might be onto something. And so from that kind of disastrous start, that's $700 million ago. And the organization has grown and I'm long gone now, but it's in you know 13 countries in 39 cities around the world. But it is another example of nobody started a large organization. Uh, I love that concept. Yeah. And your current your current uh, profession now, your current job now as well, CEO I'm, of the Networking uh, Institute. Tell us a bit about that, because it's really it's really really uh, at this time, particularly with COVID, never been locked down. Networking is kind of important. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Probably more important now than ever. Um, so look, I'm in my third act, as they say, to be generous. Um, and uh, my this period of my life is for me. It's all about trying to pass on as much as possible the stuff that I picked up. So when I was in Australia, I was representing Core Structural and also IDA Ireland. And uh, that was all about getting FDI for Ireland. And, and then uh, and then it got involved with the Ireland Funds. But to me, the glue that makes everything work in all those positions and countries, and particularly places where you go and you don't know anybody, is to build networks and to be networking. Um, and so, you know, I just think it's something that's not a, it's a luxury. It's, it's not a luxury, it's a necessity. Um, and you, you can't get through life without having connections and, 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 and getting to know people. It's all about becoming known, not famous, if you know what I mean. Um, and so I think this is an incredibly important glue. But here's what's curious, James. You know, everybody agrees it's really important. But, you know, schools and colleges don't teach it. Um, companies generally don't have strategies for it. We tend to mix up networking and sociability. We tend to think the most social person is, by definition, the best networker. And actually, it's often the exact opposite. In fact, introverts can be better at networking than extroverts because they do it with decency and authenticity and integrity. They ask questions and they listen. Whereas extroverts are always looking over your shoulder to find somebody more interesting to talk to. You know, they're flicking out business cards at a ferocious rate. You know the sort of experience. You wake up in the morning, you find somebody's business card and the turn up of your trousers and you say, where did that come from? 
So I think that's it's really interesting that actually, you know, it's not about being the most sociable. In fact, the key to networking is the simplest thing in the world. The key to networking is not getting stuff for yourself. It's actually giving stuff to others. Um, the more you give, the more you get. If you give to individuals on a consistent basis, it comes back. Explain by giving. So just give an example. You know, um, bringing somebody, like in this COVID lockdown period, he's actually ringing somebody up and actually, how are you? What can I do for you? There's three really fantastic questions you can ask when you're meeting anybody. And the first question is, what can I do for you? Because most people think networking is getting something for themselves, getting a job, a sale or whatever it is. So if you turn that on its head and say, what can I do for you? That's a great number one question. Second question, which is great, is um, if you were me, James, what would you do? So actually what you're saying is, can you give me some advice? Um, you're paying respect and deference to somebody's wisdom and experience. Um, and you're also listening, which back to that key skill in, in networking. And then the third question in networking, which is kind of like a gold dust question, which is, who do you know who, you know, works in Brisbane, aircraft leasing and in insurance or whatever it is. So what I'm really saying to you is, are you willing to put your name on the line uh, to make an introduction for me? And that's all about, do you trust me? You know, do you know enough about me to actually do that for me? That's a big ask. And that's a human thing? It's it a very human thing. And how you've handled the previous kind of bits of conversation? You know, have you done what you say you're going to do? Are you a reliable kind of person? And so, you know, that becomes a really fascinating question. So I always say what you're trying to do is replace cold calls with hot coffees. It's as simple as that. And now it's kind of hard to have a hot coffee. And how do, how do yes. how does someone navigate the kind of the Zoom world or the Microsoft Teams world <laughs> yeah. or this the Skype world? Yeah, look at so what do you say to a twenty two year old who who has no really sense of this? Maybe you and I are slightly more advanced and yeah. we've had experience of, of yeah. that and how that works. So you actually yeah. can't physically get to somebody. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'd say I, I, I'm not sure myself because I'm struggling a little yeah. bit. Around it. I would say a couple, a couple of things. I'm just backing up a little bit as to a 22-year-old who might be a bit jaundiced about the whole notion of networking because networking's got a pretty sleazy image. It conjures up images of pretty insincere people flicking out cards. It's not a very nice notion concept. Your network, interestingly enough, network as a noun sounds quite positive. We all think, yeah, I, you know, I want to have a good network. But networking as a verb sounds absolutely insincere, even a little bit dirty. You know, so so that's that. But Too salesy, in effect. That's very of. salesy. Yeah, very salesy. But it, but here's the thing that people have to realize, uh, and particularly I think people starting out in their careers, is the technical skills you need to get your job in the first instance, important as they are, become less important as you progress because everybody has them, and you can't compete on what everybody has, and relationships become more important. So that's an interesting sort of thing that nobody, nobody really teaches you that. I'm also a fan of a guy called Harvey Coleman, and he's an American writer. And he says, uh, your career depends on a concept called PI, P-I-E. And P stands for performance. And he says something which is completely outrageous. He said, how well you do your job contributes 10% to your career progress. Now, surely that's daft. Surely how well you do your job is like 80, 90%. That's what matters. And he says, no, he says, everybody does a good job. You know, that's not the competitive advantage you have. He said an interesting thing. He said, you get paid on performance. You get promoted on what other people think of your potential. So now he's introducing those two little pesky words, other people. 
So other people come into the equation. Carla Harris, who's a great um, African-American, 35-year veteran of Morgan Stanley in New York, uh, she says, always remember in your career that all the main decisions about your career will be taken by people sitting around a table in a room. All the decisions about your promotion, your compensation, next projects you take, all of those decisions will be taken by these people who are sitting at a table in a room and you will not be in that room which is a brutal and harsh fact of life. So Harvey Coleman goes on to say, performance is 10%. He said, image, that's the eye of the pie theory, is 30%. So what do people think of you? What's your reputation? Your reputation is what somebody says about you when you're not in the room. So your reputation follows you around and in some cases precedes you. So that's really important. And then 60%. The E of the pie theory represents 60%, and that's all about exposure. Who's seen you in action? Who's seen you perform? Who's seen you deliver? Who's seen you at meetings? You know, do you just do invisible work or do you, or you, do, do, you do visible work? Um, so, so this is all about becoming known within the organization and outside the organization, um, building up your own personal brand, if you like. Mm. Carla Harris says you need, there are two types of currency at work. She says there's, there's performance currency, which is doing a great job, but that's the minimum. Everybody does it. And then there's relationship currency. And you need in your network three types of people. You need to have an advisor, and that's somebody who gives you technical advice and helps you to do the job that you do. You need to have a mentor, and a mentor is somebody maybe in the organization, maybe outside, who gives you the good, the bad, and the ugly. But then you need something else. You need a sponsor. A sponsor just doesn't talk to you. A sponsor talks about you. Back to that reason. You need somebody that when your name is mentioned in that room is willing to go into bat for you. And nobody will use the power that they have in life and expend it on somebody they don't know. So you have to become known. I hope that makes sense. It's as simple as that. So okay, let's break it, bring it into context of a 22-year-old coming out of college now. The world really isn't isn't um, for them to find a job or start off. So how do they how do they start from scratch? Well, you know, how I, do they how do they put a simple little plan that yeah. they can believe in and then get a bit of momentum behind it? Yeah, so I, I need to answer your question about you know how do you network and we can't network. So we might come back to that. But I do think university offers an interesting opportunity. Um, to start building some networks outside of what we call your organic networks. Your organic networks is, is all about your family, you know, your relatives, the, how the street you live in, the school you went to. They all happen. You, you don't control them. Now you've gone into an environment in a university where there's thousands of people and you've got to figure out where you're going to gravitate. And I think that's why, you know, the academic um, experience is important. Um, the social experience is very important. And it's about clubs and societies and it's debating or it's, it's playing gar or soccer or golf or whatever it is. And the relationships that you make then, and, and you and I know this because <laughs> we still hang around with some of the people that we actually met and spent time with in college. And when you look at the model of the alumni relationship model that universities follow, it is all about the opportunity of connecting these people with all sorts of different people and getting them to contribute and involve themselves back. So I think that offers a really interesting first step for the 22-year-old is to actually take university as a good way of building uh, a network. And also, the most important thing in your network is actually to build diversity in your network. 
There's a concept called homophily, and homophily is, is a, means we have a tendency, all of us, to hang around with people just like us. You know, you know, we go to school with people just like us. We, 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 we study with them. We work with them. We go on holidays with them. We play sport with them. We marry them and we produce more of them. But actually, that's not what the world out there is. So you and I live in, we all live in Dublin. Dublin is a city when I was growing up here, essentially it was male, pale and stale. You know, it was not a very cosmopolitan international city. In fact, I told a joke yesterday when I was telling the, the story. I remember going into a restaurant back then in Dublin and I asked the waiter, what's the soup du jour? And he said, hang on, I'll ask the chef. So he goes in, he asks the chef and he comes out and he says, it's soup of the day, right? So we were not a very international cosmopolitan city. But today in Dublin, here's some stats, 12%, 14% of the population of the United States were not born in the United States. In Ireland, it's 17%. In Dublin, it's 25%. But of the working age population of Dublin, 33% were not born in Ireland. But here's the question. Does your network reflect the diversity of the economy you work in, the society you live in? And for most people, the answer is probably no. And all the research shows that if that's the case, you as an individual, you as a company, underperform. So building diversity into your network is really important. We're going back to a question about the 22-year-old who may not have leveraged off the college experience, has now suddenly arrived out, has scored very well academically. Yeah. How do I get a job? How do I get a network? Forget about the job is one thing. How do I get a network which can lead to a job? Just any, any really simple tips you can offer? Well, you know, I always say, you know, back to my thing about networking is about giving, not getting him. And I think it's very important that you find ways to to give, to volunteer, to mentor, to help, to to find people who will mentor you. I think it's uh, it's all about trying to build different relationships. Just to look at your 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 your, your scorecard, if you like, who academically that you know, who on the academic staff might help you who um, in, the, in the people that you've met might be able to make introductions or help you. So, you know, it's, you know, the nice thing about it is you're starting with a blank sheet um, and, uh, and then taking every opportunity to be active, to participate, to take part, to do stuff. I mean, the great thing about networking is about doing stuff. And so it is about joining societies in, in college or out of college, following whatever particular interests you have, whether they're academic or sporting or cultural or whatever it is, but find those things and engage with them, you know, and not sort of switch off or turn off from what's going on. And then, you know, your other point about, you know, how do you do that right now when we're all locked down? Um, and we're all sort of restricted to from connecting with anybody because networking essentially is a social activity. And how do you do that? And I think the, the, the one thing I would say is that we have the opportunity through technology of connecting with anybody anywhere in the world. So what's nice about this evolution into the Zooms and the webinars and all the things you mentioned and Microsoft Teams, et cetera, is the fact that you can access anybody anywhere in the world and that's never, we've never been in that so, situation so it's easier, before. It's kind of easier now. Well, it's easier. On one level. It's very cheap. Transaction costs are very cheap. Um, so I think, A, that's an interesting plus about remote remote working. Secondly, um, everybody is spending more time than ever before online. So now we know where they are. We know people are online. Thirdly, people are available. I mean, nobody's going anywhere. You know, people call me and say, are you around next week? Well, of course I'm around next week. I'm not going anywhere. So that's an interesting notion. And another thing is you, you don't have to spend a ton of money getting on planes and 
abusing the environment and uh, using up time and energy and uh, flying to go and see people that you may not even like or do anything with, you can actually connect with them from your, mm. from your table and you can make a decision. And you remember in the old days, you go to a conference and you come back with a bundle of business cards and over the next week or two, you'd sort of start replying to people. Now it's instantaneous. You can connect with somebody instantaneously after you've had a Zoom call. So I think there's some pluses in this. Yeah, it's not a lot, but yeah. some. One final question on that subject is that I've heard, you know, people I work with in the career career advice space and younger people, or even not necessarily only younger people, they're afraid to make the ask, as if they're going to people are going to say no. Do you have any thoughts around just to, to reinforce that it's really positive to make the ask, but to make it in a particular way? Yeah, I mean, asking is your greatest personal marketing tool, you know, and, you know, the, all the cliches come tumbling out. If you want to get, you have to ask, you know, you know, nobody gives you anything. You have to ask for these things. And so, you know, there are people who really do shy away from that. And I think part of that is it comes back to things like confidence and having a sense of self-confidence. Um, and uh, I think the educational process is important that that's that's focused on. Uh, we're, pr we're producing terrifically technically capable youngsters and coming out of college, brilliant, but actually a little bit weaker, I suspect, than the previous generations in certain soft skills. I did some work uh, a couple of years ago at the National University of Singapore, and they have a, that's the number one university in Asia, number 20 in the world, incredible, incredible people fight to get into this. And the kids who come out are really, really fantastic, deductive, analytical, and brilliant, but actually quite weak in their soft skills. So they've set up a thing called the Center for Future Ready Graduates. Isn't that interesting? The, the, That's the a name, title. The name suggests what the problem is. Um, and I think one of the things we have to figure a way out of dealing with is that intense use of devices, um, a huge, gigantic amount of time spent on screens, uh, there's a woman called Sherry Turkle, an American writer, wrote a book called Alone Together. And her thesis is that, you know, we're, we're living in a world now where everybody's connected with everybody all around the world at the click of a switch, but they're all alone in front of a screen. And James, when you and I think of the best things, the best experiences we've had in our lives, were they in front of a screen? No. Or were they with no, people? They're with people, with community. So, you know, I think we're storing up a bit of a problem here. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting. I think actually the biggest crisis facing the world is not COVID, as maybe maybe probably is climate change, but certainly one of the biggest crises is uh, loneliness. And technology. And, uh, technology. Can, can enable that, but also I can support it. So I think technology creates it as well as, you know, so it's uh, it's uh, the devil on both sides. It's, inter it's inter interesting. It's funny on an aside, just for the listeners, when, when just before we started this uh, podcast, uh, I mentioned to to Kingsley about a chap I was talking to called Derek Kenny, who's an old colleague of mine who works in Hong Kong. And Kingsley said, that's funny, I was talking with him last week and helping um, him support. So the world is very small totally. and sometimes it's, and so now we have a contact, both of us have different experiences of Derek and maybe from Derek we'll get contacts and he'll give us contacts. So yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a kind of validation of yeah. sometimes when you, when you talk to people, yeah. you don't know who they know. Well, that's true. People that you know. Yeah. And you know, in the old days, your geography dictated your identity. If you lived in Southern California, that's who you were. But now, you know, you can be, you know, you can have a foot in different camps. You know, Derek Kenny's in Hong Kong. He's got all these connections in China. He's got connections here. I mean, that's really interesting. And I think the world is more a mosaic than a melting pot. 
you know, I think is made up of all sorts of different kind of mixtures of people in different places. And uh, when you get these together, and I think it's a very exciting thing, and it, it always segues into that whole area of diaspora. So I was involved with the Irish diaspora mm. and all around the world. I mean, 10 million people have left Ireland in history. I mean, I think statistically more people have left this country than any other country uh, per head, if you like, in history. But that's the bad news. The good news is we have an extraordinary diaspora, which, you know, it's, it's, it's so varied and so interesting and involved in so many different ways. Just watching Simon Coveney yesterday and the day before in Washington, sitting down with, you know, the great power breakers, the Nancy Pelosi's and the Richie Neal's and the Burns and these kind of, kind of characters. It's, it is incredible, the power of that diaspora. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Would you share with the listeners, like you have been in your position with the Ireland Funds, you've got to meet some fairly interesting people. Do you want to share a couple of people you say, that's uh, that's really interesting, that was a really interesting person and why? One of our uh, previous, or one of our uh, one of the people we've talked to, uh, they had met with uh, Kofi Annan and they were, oh, yeah. they, they were sharing what they thought of him as a person, yeah, just yeah, as a yeah, human. Yeah. So anyone come to mind that should... Well, I think that I, look. I think the person um, that would be to me head and shoulders anybody else was the opportunity I had years ago when I was with the Ireland Fund to have dinner with Nelson Mandela in in, uh, in Pretoria, in, in South Africa. I mean, there is an extraordinary individual, extraordinary story, and and you know you really felt very humble to be in his presence. It was around the time of the World Cup, if you remember, when South Africa won, uh, beating the All Blacks in 1995. And when uh, Nelson Mandela came out on the pitch wearing Francois Piner's shirt, it was an extraordinarily emotional moment. But but he, he was he was in really incredible. And, and, you know, we were involved when I was with the Ireland Funds to actually sending all the leaders of Northern Ireland to South Africa. And it was funded by ourselves and Chuck Feeney, who was an incredible Incredible Irish American. the papers over the, over the last couple of uh, couple of days. And yeah, so we he's kind of retired that. from his fund is retired. It's, uh, brilliant! It's limited life foundation. Eight billion? Was it eight billion? Eight billion and like two billion to Ireland. I mean, we owe him so much, particularly the educational sector, the universities in Ireland. But um, we funded sending the the leaders from Northern Ireland from both sides, all of them, all the different leaders, to spend three days with Mandela in in South Africa. And with Ralph Meyer, who is head of the National Party, and Cyril Ramaphosa, who is the current president of South Africa. You, you might share with the, 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 the people from the island of Ireland that went over. You might share the names of the people. That well, there were the leaders there. of the different parties. Okay. So um, there was uh, SDLP and uh, there was uh, the Unionists, the DUP. There was also the PUP, Davy Irvine, various other people went. Um, and it was, it, was an ex- it was a remarkable experience because... That was in 1996, and one year later, the Good Friday Agreement was signed. And many of the people who were there and involved with signing the Good Friday Agreement would say that it was what what was achieved in South Africa with those days when Mandela gave up his time uh, to spend time with the delegations, and he had to do it separately with each different delegation, um, that that was a really pivotal uh, impact on what went on. So so I think, to answer your question, he'd be head and shoulders above anybody else I've met. Interesting. What do what qualities do you look in people that, that, that when you go to look to recruit someone? To recruit somebody, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I remember when I was in Sydney, um, uh, the secretary le- left the organisation, the trade board, and um, I didn't I didn't know how to find somebody. I was going down the elevator one day, and I heard a, a, a very obviously a Dublin accent, and um, 
I, I turned to the person as she was leaving and I said, you know, where are you from? And had a chat and I said, yeah, fancy a cup of coffee. And I had a cup of coffee and there was something about her I just thought was fantastic. And her name was Teresa Keating and she's still there today. And she runs the Ireland Funds, the Lansdowne Club. She, she's just been there for 30 odd years. But there was something there in that chemistry that worked between us. Um, you know, she wasn't a highly qualified person, but she has got the best instincts of anybody I've ever worked with. She knows more, you know, in her little finger than the rest of us that have in her, in her own bodies about people skills and interpersonal skills and being a really good judge of, of human horse flesh and just having this kind of, I like the word savvy. I mean, I think savvy is an interesting concept. Nobody sort of teaches savvy, but what is savvy? Savvy's cup of, savvy smarts. It's just using, using your common sense. So I like all of that. I love people who... Um, have a keen sense of the ridiculous and a, and a strong sense of humor. I, I can't imagine working with somebody who is deadly serious all the time. Um, uh, so, so that, and then, you know, I would always hire for attitude over ability. If somebody has the right attitude, they'll, they'll be able to find other people to do the difficult technical stuff. So they'd be my three. Okay. Interesting. And just if you, if you haven't had, if you didn't have the career you've had, what would you have done? Uh, for example, a professional sports person or a mixologist or yeah. a, a wine guru. Is there anything you'd go back and say, you know what, God, I'd love to have done that. A bit of fun. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing I, I've always um, been interested in uh, is the diplomatic service. Is, um, you know, working for the foreign service of a country. I've worked with lots of foreign services. I've worked with over 30 countries now on diaspora engagement. So I, I deal with these people a lot. And I've always found them to be interesting and different and diverse. Their lives are, are really sort of zigzag lives because they spend three years here and four years there and five years somewhere else. Um, so I, they've always got an interesting, different perspective on things. So if I had it all over again, as, a, as opposed to applying to the trade board, I'd like to apply for the, to the Department of Foreign Affairs, highly unlikely I would have been hired, I must add. Why? Um, you know, I don't if, speak, if you want to disclose. Yeah, I don't speak Irish fluently. I mean, that probably, is, probably would have been a deterrent. Um, no, I, would, I don't know, really. Um, I must say I dealt with the Irish, the Irish uh, diplomatic service all over the world, and I think they're outstanding. We're incredibly well served by them. Um, they do a terrific job. And, um, you know, and I think the notion that we have now of and it, it was an old notion, but it's a current notion that there is such a thing as an Irish empire, not built by military might or force of arms, but just by the fact that we are in so many different places and people have achieved so much in these other countries. And then the difference between the nation and the state, the state being lines on a map, you know, the nation being a global notion. And what's interesting is that there's so many countries around the world are trying to copy that, if you like. Um, I, I'm a founder member of a group called CASE, which stands for Copy and Steal Everything. Just figure who's doing this stuff well. We did it with the UJA and the Jewish community in America. Could we do that with it? And, and so the countries I'm dealing with now around the world, they all just want to do the things that Ireland has done in diaspora engagement and apply it to their countries. In fact, I have a, my conference call this afternoon is with Lesotho who are trying to model what they do in their diaspora engagement with some of the things that we've done here. So it's an interesting piece of, I think, sort of expertise that Ireland can offer the world. We're probably one of the top four countries in the world in terms of diaspora engagement. Um, and and it's, it's, it was part of our constitution. It's always part of how we think and feel in this country, being a small country from which so many people left. That's the bad news. The good news is we have an empire. And the uniqueness of our ability, of course, we haven't 
had too many wars with our dominated other cultures. So, and maybe our, our sense of doing things, we kind of can float in. Yeah. Um, my sense in the past, having spent some time in Africa and, and saw that like the, one of the diplomats, Irish diplomats in action, who was just phenomenal, General John Lynham, if I remember his name, he was in Kampala and he came down to a hospital called Kasisi, which is on the Congo border, which um, I was thankfully involved a little bit with. And he opened a new ward, which Irish Aid uh, had actually funded 50% of the cost. And um, the funny story about that is that because in, in that type of society, John being a diplomat was like a king arriving. So they, they, they wheeled out a, a, a throne and they put him up on a throne <laughs> where he made a speech. Well, and uh, there was five Irish uh, 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 there witnessing this. Someone was a uh, retired uh, um, uh, Gordon Lenny, who was a Church of Ireland minister. And uh, we, we traveled back up to Kampala, six hours journey. Well, uh, uh, the, the King 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 John got put in the back seat very I quickly. Say, proper but, order. But, proper but, order. But he, he left a lovely, yeah. a lovely um, image and his gracefulness. And it's funny <laughs> when you see. Um, our ambassadors and how they how they represent and yeah. the local the local guys and, and 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 ladies in the community were just very impressed because yeah. Yeah. The, the, his uh, the style and sense we're well yeah. served and this notion that we're a small island at the centre of the world is a kind of an interesting concept yeah. it's an it's an interesting thing my last my second last question if 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 I may bounce at you uh, workplace stress mindfulness. Uh, young people moving jobs because careers are, are, are maybe every three years people move, whereas maybe our generation people in jobs for 10 to 20 years. Yeah. Have you any thoughts and comments around that? Well, my dad left school at 14 and joined a company and he left that company age 77. So it's just a quick 63 years in, in, in one company. Um, and that's all gone. And, uh, you know, my kids whom you know are, are setting off in their careers and the old escalator model of a career where you join work, then get promoted work, promoted, and you work your way up to the clock at the end of the day, totally and utterly gone, finished forever. So people will be moving and changing like never before, which is why they need their network. Because quite frankly, 80% of good jobs are not advertised. It's what they call the hidden jobs market. You know, people are going to find you, recruitment companies are going to find you. So that's back to that thing about you have to have, be known and have a reputation. So I think that um, uh, that's the difference. That's the difference that we have now. And so that gives added urgency to building a network of diversity. There was a guy called Granovetter, who's an American, wrote a very seminal piece of work that said your weak connections are more, more important to you in terms of getting your next job than your strong connections. And that was an interesting thing because your weak connections will kind of, if you like, bridge you into all sorts of different networks of people. Whereas your strong connections tend to be with people that you know. Not only do you know them, you know what they think, you know who they know. Uh, so it's a very interesting, back to that thing about the importance of your network is its diversity. That's its strength. It's funny, it reminds me of a story of my, my father-in-law, who's 95, who, who set up a number of companies in Italy and lived there for seven years. And he's had diverse experiences, was in the RAF. He's a Cumbrian farmer, arrived in Ireland. But in Italy, he would tip the waiter before, before. the meal. Yeah. And I never understood that. And he said... What's <laughs> the point of tipping at the end? <laughs> and it was, it was, but it was a network. So the next time he came into that restaurant, yeah, sure. he got the table. And it was just such a simple, 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 simple. Very simple. 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 So things are. And also <laughs> that waiter could have been, if you're in a little village somewhere, yeah. that waiter could have been the person who was the door. 
to everybody else in, in, in the village or what you want. So it was a kind sure. of interesting thing. For sure. Last question, if, if to, to close out our session here, five words to describe oh, your wow. five words to describe your career. Oh right, um, um, I suppose back to that word I used a minute ago, zigzag. It was a bit of a zigzag career. Um, so you know, it, it wasn't a straight line. It was kind of zigzag. Um, I think um, international. I mean, I you know, much as I love this country and I'm delighted to be back here now, I was. I intensely want to go and live in other countries. I want to test myself. I want to go to countries where I didn't speak the language. And I wanted to, wanted to go um, and just, you know, I had that cavalier kind of swashbuckling kind of out and out of approach then. So the second one would be um, international. I'd use, I'd like to, to think of the word humor because I think um, we call it crack in Ireland, I guess, but it's always very close to the surface. I mean, my bucket list last year, last year on my bucket list was to perform as a stand-up comic in a nightclub. So I went to the Gaiety School of Acting and I got trained in that and I actually had to perform. Now, I'm not a stand-up comic, as you know, but I actually had to deliver 21 laughs in seven minutes in a nightclub in Dublin. And I, and I did it, you know, and it was an interesting challenge. Uh, so I, I'm a big fan of, of, of humour. How, how many have I done? Have I got more? Three. So I've done three. Two, two to go. Yeah, two more single words that describe would sum me up. That resonate with yeah. you. Um, well, I like the words. Um, there's two words in Dublin, which we call a decent skin. Do you know that old expression? They say, your man, he's a decent skin. And I hope that it's not for me to say about myself that, but I'd hope other people would think that I'm a decent skin. In other words, I would think of um, how could I help other people a bit along the way. Um, and then... Um, um, you're looking for one more. God, you're tough, James. You're looking, looking, looking for one more. Can you give me a selection of someone? I'll choose one from it. Um, uh, Say energy. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I suppose on on that thing, I I I <clears throat> I've always tried to keep fit. So you know, here in the summer, I swim every day. I walk every walk nearly every morning. Certainly, when the, there's enough light. And I think that um, maybe that would be, that would cover your energy point. Great. Kingsley, I'd like to thank you very much for taking your time to talk with us today. Thanks for listening, James. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to The Career Scoop. Brought to you by Elevate Career Advice and Elevate Executive Selection. I'm James Fitzsimons, and I hope you have enjoyed listening. Make sure to tune in for next week's episode.